You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents. You can enjoy extended commercial free versions of this show by joining us at patreon.com forward slash monster talk, all one word M O N S T E R T A L K. For as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy longer interviews, unbleeped language, and bonus episodes exclusive for patrons. And if $2 a month is not workable for you, but you still want to help out, be sure and leave us a positive review on your podcasting platform of choice. iTunes reviews in particular can help bring in new listeners and your positive reviews really make a difference. If you want to learn other ways to help out, visit monstertalk.org forward slash support, where you can find even more ways to help keep this show going. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us with your hard-earned money and valuable time. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or even exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Welcome back to part two of our two-part interview with Dr. Jeffrey Kripal of Rice University. If you haven't heard part one of our interview, I'd strongly encourage you to start there for context. But it laid out a bit of Jeff's personal history and how he got involved in religious studies. Jeff's written several books that deal with the interplay between pop culture, the paranormal or supernormal, 
And in his latest book, he talks about how he'd like to see the structure of academia change to be more inclusive for ideas that don't fit into the materialist reductionist paradigm that I believe he sees as the dominant paradigm in educational structure today. And if I'm misstating that or misunderstanding it, hopefully the interview will make his position more clear. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Jeff is I knew we wouldn't be in agreement on our conclusions. I didn't bring him on to debate him, but I did want to talk with him and hopefully get a better understanding of how he understands the world. Why? Why have a conversation with someone you know you're not going to agree with? Well, I wanted to talk to Jeff because I think there's value in talking to people even if you're never going to be on the same page, if you're never going to reach the same conclusions. In the past 10 to 15 years, it feels to me like something's fundamentally broken in our culture, and the value of ideological purity has reached unsustainable levels. Personally, I feel like rational, materialist approaches are always in peril because there's such an unnatural way to examine the world. Rationalism and skepticism is not intuitive. It requires training. It requires practice. And our brains, I feel like, are built for magical explanations and heuristic shortcuts and biases. And that we find incredible comfort in a community that agrees with us and thinks we're right. Meanwhile, Jeff's book, The Superhumanities, is arguing that academia needs to be more inclusive to the supernormal. As I was reading the book, I kept thinking he was describing an academic world akin to Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. And it turns out in some of Jeff's other interviews, he's used that exact metaphor. Or maybe it's not a metaphor if he's sincerely aspirational about that framing. So it was hard for me to read The Superhumanities because my head was trying to reject the premise, but I learned things by reading it. And if you reject things outright without giving them an examination, you miss these moments. As I've mentioned, one of my other areas of research is innovation. Over and over again, the history of insights and innovation is one where random discoveries are made by inventors who run into ideas outside of their area of expertise, or they run into insights from beyond their normal domain of work. That's not how every major discovery happens, but it's often enough that I believe taking the time to read books on topics you've got no interest in, or to watch videos or presentations, or take classes, etc., can lead to breakthroughs or insights or aha moments that would never have come about otherwise. And what's the worst case scenario? You take a class or read a book and you don't like it and you don't learn anything. That would be the worst case. And that would be rare. It would be rare to learn nothing when you're deliberately seeking to expand your mind and experience. But also, it's just good to talk to people without turning everything into an all or nothing debate. Everything doesn't have to be a win or lose confrontation. I understand that there's comfort in finding one's tribe, but I also see the peril in tribalism and the pointlessness of seeking ideological purity. So that's why this interview is happening, plus whatever I said in part one. Who knows why we truly do anything, but these are the reasons that I tell myself. Now, that is dangerously close to navel-gazing, and after COVID, I have way too much tummy to take up that habit. Anyway, here's part two of our conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. I hope you enjoy it, and we will see you after the interview. Monster Talk. Blake, you joked a lot about being a skeptic, and, and Karen, you said many of the same things, but I actually think we share probably way more. Than- oh, for sure. Like, I know there's going to be things I disagree, because I, I, I've never read a book where I was more like, I cannot wait to talk to this guy, because I want to ask <laughs> what the hell he means here. 
but but at the same time, I'm nervous too. Well, I was nervous. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, and because you know, anytime we do one of these interviews, we're always like we want to bring in experts, and often I bring in people that I know are are people you know they're on the same you know sort of thinking as me. But when I talk to someone who who has looked at the exact same stuff and come to entirely different conclusions, that's more challenging, you know, and I, am I up to the conversation? You know, am I prepared? And yeah. and I worry about it. And it's not that I want to sit down and have a debate with you, but I really do want to understand your position. And yeah. that that can be intimidating. But no, all this reading uh, was very exciting. And um, I learned some cool things in here. And I'm very interested in the history of magic as well as science. So you were talking mm-hmm. about the origin of hermeticism. And so you surprised me. I didn't know that the sort of early hermetic documents came through the Medici or were popularized through the Medici. So yeah. uh, I'm uh, excited to – I've just ordered the uh, the sort of key text from the uh, – what is it? Hermes Trimagestus. So, uh, you know, just adding to my occult library over here. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, Jeff, if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by the term superhumanities. Yeah, I, I can do that. So, I, you know, I've been an academic for almost 30 years now. I, I got my first job in 93, and I've been teaching teaching young people and talking to my colleagues for three decades now. And we work in a, a general field called the humanities, which by the way, almost no one will be able to define for you. They'll just, what they'll do is they'll list a set of disciplines. They'll talk about literature and history and and language and religion and philosophy, but they'll never really define the humanities. But the humanities essentially are a set of disciplines that tries to study what human beings are produced and tries to understand why human beings do what they do and why they think what they think and why they believe what they believe. And... Over the decades, the humanities have become more and more reductive. They've they've reduced the human to essentially a social and political animal, that what human beings really are, are are social and political animals, and that they organize into groups, and these groups last for a while, and then they dissipate, and and these animals die, and that's that. You know, I was trained in that. I I happen to agree largely with that. I was trained in psychoanalytic ways of thinking that really emphasize sexuality and biological reproduction and how people are raised as children. So I, I am largely on board with all of that. But over the years, I've grown more and more frustrated with that because the humanities have lost more and more ground in the public. And my colleagues will reduce things. They'll take things apart, but they generally won't put things back together and they won't ever say anything positive or hopeful or optimistic about the human animal. And so if you look, though, at the texts we read and the people we actually claim to admire, people like Friedrich Nietzsche or William James or Gloria Anzaldúa or you know any of these people... Um, they actually say some pretty extraordinary things about human beings. And they often think out of what we might think of as altered states of consciousness or mind. They they have precognitive dreams or they have out-of-body experiences or they 
see themselves, visit themselves from the future or something, no, something, something pretty extraordinary, really. And this is how they got their ideas. And these are the books we still read and teach today. And so by calling this, call, by, by naming this book The Superhumanities, what I was trying to do was say, listen, the humanities are really cool. They're actually about the superhuman. And if we would start to talk about the humanities in this way, people might actually get enthused about what we do. And, and people could even grow up wanting to be superhumans. They, 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 want, they don't want to grow up being a humanist. It's, it's depressing. But, but they might want to grow up and become, become a superhuman. And so, you know, it's, it's, partly, it's partly a prod. It's partly a joke. But I'm also quite serious about that. I, I think the reason the humanities have been sidelined today is precisely because we don't have anything positive to say. And, and in fact, I think we have all kinds of positive things to say if we would just say them. Well, and so that's really what the book is about. That's it's funny to me that you, wh what, I mean, you talk a lot about what words mean. I, I, do you, I don't want to call you out, but like, do you mind talking about the word inspiration? No, I mean, I could talk, I'm a professor. I can talk about words to the. That, that idea of where do I get is come from. It's so funny to me. I, I, um. I was in a weird conversation. I was in a conversation with Jacques Vallée through a proxy. And what it was about was um, the inventor of the Cray computer, uh, Cray, yep. Cray uh, when he used to have um, intellectual challenges when developing his computing equipment, um, he would go dig like a tunnel. And he said, as he dug, basically the kobolds would give him information, like the <laughs> like the, the goblins, and yeah. and, and I, I sent that to Valet because I thought it was the kind of thing he would appreciate. And he wrote back, he's like, "That's hilarious." Of course, it was actually fairies, which <laughs> which is the best response. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that idea of uh, of 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 inspiration, like where do ideas come from? I mean. It does often seem supernatural. Like I, you know, as a skeptic uh, and a materialist, I have to say I assume the it's coming. In... And... Yeah, but but still, like I mean, we all the muses exactly. Like well, I mean, I literally have a tattoo on my arm of a fairy whispering, and no one's ever asked me why. But the reason is because if anyone ever asked me why do I think the way I do or where do I get my ideas, I was going to point to the fairy and say well, I get them from her. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not pointing to anything supernatural with this discussion of inspiration. I, you know, if you if you talk to professional writers and often professional thinkers, they will all tell you the same thing that in their most creative moments, it's actually not them that's writing or thinking or or seeing it's it's something else in them you know it's it's them from the future or it's the muse or the fairy to use your your mythological language so i'm not i'm not suggesting anything supernatural at work i'm just i'm suggesting that there's something essentially super about human beings and that writers and thinkers in particular are especially prone to these altered states, and that's where they get their best ideas from. It nobody, I mean, I won't say nobody, but I I know I don't know any profound thinker that gets their ideas from mechanically thinking them. That's that's nonsense, frankly. Um, ideas come in dreams. Ideas come when you're taking a shower. Ideas come 
-hmm. from moments of, of wild and crazy inspiration, they don't, they're not mechanically produced. Um, I think that's the real mistake we've made in the modern world. Can't see, but I'm nodding. <laughs> <laughs> that, doesn't, yeah. that doesn't work on podcasts, does it? <laughs> go, go to, Jacques, to go back to Jacques for a moment. I mean, Jacques's a dear friend. I I wrote a whole chapter study of Jacques Vallée in, in my book, Authors of the Impossible. And, you know, we have something here at Rice called Archives of the Impossible, which which start with Jacques Vallée's gift of his papers and case studies. And if you know Jacques, what you know, you, you know is that First of all, he was on computer number two on the ARPANET. He was at the very beginning of the of what became the internet and was at the very origins of computing in the US. His, his PhD was in computer science in the late 60s at, at, at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. I'd love um, to talk to him. Mm-hmm. But you also know that he's completely obsessed with parapsychological, paranormal, and ufological phenomena, mm-hmm. which he reads in very computer science-like ways. He sees it as information. He thinks where he thinks when people have these experiences, they're tapping into some kind of information network. He doesn't invoke God or the supernatural, but he clearly thinks that reality ain't what it looks like. And that computing and paranormal phenomena are very much related for him. Um, I, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. No, no, that comports with all my reading. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's a very interesting guy. Well, Jeff, what do you see as the, the big problem with the humanities as they exist now? And yeah. Is this just an issue with the humanities or with academia as a whole? Yeah. So I live and breathe in, in the academy. I mean, I'm an associate dean in a school of humanities at a major research university in the South, and it's private, and it's a really, really good university. And so I know in my bones, you know, where the lines in the sand are. And I would say this, I would say that in our present culture, it's the STEM fields that are now dominating uh, the order of knowledge. The, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And they dominate knowledge because they can produce things. They can make stuff. Um, the humanities have historically produced things as well, like democracy and freedom and uh, moral values, for example. But they've increasingly become very concerned about ethical and political issues for really good reasons. And they focus on those to the exclusion of all of these other, uh, what I would call transcendent issues. So they're, they're very good at a kind of two-dimensional thinking with with analyzing society in a kind of two-dimensional way, but they're very bad at integrating that third transcendent dimension. And I think that's the challenge that we're facing now is that the humanities are being sidelined because they've become two-dimensional and they're, they, they're very good at scolding us for very good reasons. Uh, human beings have been very bad, to put it mildly, uh, to each other. Um, 
but we lack in the humanities a positive vision of the future and what a human being is in a in a, in a way that people can really get behind and the sciences have that frankly the sciences have that in abundance um, and that's why the sciences and technology are are expanding and doing so well and the humanities are contracting and doing so poorly so i think that that's the challenge well, isn't academia as a whole suffering right now? I mean, isn't it, is that my imagination? Because it feels like that, uh, like all of it's having problems. That that there's it's sort of a reductive problem, which is ironic. Uh, I, let me let me if you uh, will will indulge me. I think a lot about Steve Jobs, who I I do not deify in any way. I think he was a jerk, but he also had a real talent for picking up on the artistic side of things. And, you know, he, he was the one, he was very focused on style, design, fonts, photography, and, and the idea of bringing these ancient technologies into modern computing. Um, and a lot of that's been lost. I mean, uh, you know, Apple was founded by a lot of poets and hippies. And, and now I think there's sort of a reductionist, you know, get an engineer in here and solve this problem. Uh, and sadly, I've heard things like, let's put our I don't even want to get into that, but people people are um, doing a lot of things around reductive engineering as though it's going to solve all our problems without considering the humanity at the root of it all. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't know what you want me to say to that other than I agree completely. Um, I <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. He's happy with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, honestly, I think the sciences, the STEM fields have been really bad at humanity, too. I I think they're really good at everything other than humanity. And so I don't think anybody actually is speaking for our humanity. I think we're making stuff. And frankly, we're making a lot of stuff that's killing us. And, you know... We're not really asking the question of who is doing this and why. Why are we doing this? And what kind of what kind of life do we really want for our children and our grandchildren? Cer- certainly not this one. It it's peculiar because I see things like um, Google used to be a really amazing search engine, but now it seems like the the tendency to push towards ads has reduced the functionality of search. But at the same time, we get stuff like TikTok. And I had yeah. – it's not not a platform that really works for me, but I spent like 25 minutes uh, in the first couple of days of uh, this year actually digging into TikTok and looking. And I'm like, my goodness, there are so many creative people doing so many f- wonderful you know, uh, expressionistic uh, posts. I don't know how else to describe it. It's jokes. It's nonsense. It's people being people. And, yeah. and, and I, I found that really powerful. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like in the one sense, you know, technology and, and, and maybe academia as a whole is seems like it's on a trend towards reductionism, towards functionality and profit. But yeah. on the other side you can't suppress the creativity of human beings. You know, we will find ways to express ourselves. Yeah, no, it's true. I hope so. And, you know, I mean, Blake and Karen, I hope it, I hope it's obvious. We, we all just work where we happen to be. Right. I mean, I, 
I'm a, I'm an academic. I mean, that's the world I know, and so that's the world I'll talk about. But I don't think for a second that that's the whole world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I I I I, th I think I'm pretty realistic about that. I I, I and I, that's that's one reason I'm so interested in religion. By the way, is because I think that's where a lot of human beings actually are. You know, existentially, they're not certainly not in the universities. They're they're in the churches or the synagogues or the mosques, and they they believe what they hear. And um, I don't believe that, but I think that's part of the world we have to understand and we have to somehow integrate, you know, if we're going to create a future worldview. Nicely said. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. You talk in your book about uh, transcendentalism. Can you tell us a bit about what that has to do with addressing problems with the humanities yeah, and academia? I, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, transcendentalism was a movement born in the middle of the 19th century around Boston, actually. And essentially what it argued was that there was a transcendental core to the human being. There was there was an overmind. There was a there was a kind of soul or spirit of the human that was greater than all of its cultural or religious expressions. Um, so, for example, Ralph Waldo Emerson gave this lovely little speech to five graduating um, uh, seniors at Harvard Divinity School. Um, and, you know, he, he basically says, I don't believe in Christianity, I believe in consciousness. In other words, he was trying to argue that there's this this oversoul or this deeper nature to human 
human beings that that cannot be identified with any particular religion or culture. And that then he, he's, by the way, kicked out of Harvard for 50 years because of that that sermon. Um, but that becomes kind of the core of transcendentalism. And I think that's largely still the core of what we call the humanities, that there's something there's something about human beings that cannot be identified with any culture or religion. And that's why you can study all these religions and all these cultures in a school of humanities is because none of them are are privileged, as it were. All of them are objects of study because there's something deeper or more basic to all of them that we can identify as human. There was a lot of discussion of Nietzsche in your book. <laughs> yeah. So why do you see him as important in the arguments that you make? Like, what what is special about Nietzsche? And it, I'll admit, I have not read enough Nietzsche, and I always feel like he's kind of like Darwin, where everybody talks about Nietzsche and everybody talks about Darwin, but very few people have actually read the core texts. And I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah so... I had not read Nietzsche either, by the way, um, until a few years ago. And the reason I read Nietzsche was because a number of my graduate students' lives had been completely changed by reading him. And I don't mean a little changed. I mean a lot of changed, and in a very positive and powerful way. And I knew, you know, from my reading that there, there are really three individuals in the humanities that are sort of revered in the 19th century – one is Karl Marx, um, the other is Sigmund Freud, and the other is Friedrich Nietzsche. And those are seen as our kind of masters of suspicion. Those are ways of, of being suspicious pr about pretty much everything. Uh, I had read a lot of Freud. I had been psychoanalyzed. I knew Freud inside and out. I did not know Nietzsche. I read Nietzsche a few years ago, and I was frankly blown away. And what shocked me about Nietzsche was I knew how critical he was of religion. I, I actually shared all of his criticisms. I had no problem with any of them. I had inherited all of them through the study of religion. But it was obvious to me that he was thinking out of his own ecstatic states that he started to enter in the, in the 1880s. Um, and then eventually collapsed in, in a street in Turin in 1889 um, from probably some kind of brain tumor. So it was really obvious to me that many of the books that he wrote in the 1880s and he's most famous for were written out of these altered states that looked to me a lot like the mystical states that I had studied in, in these other religions. And so Nietzsche became for me a kind of perfect example of the superhumanities. He he was somebody that was always talked about in the negative. You know, he was the guy who said God is dead. He was the guy who said we live like cows. We were, were a herd. You know, we, we all think alike. But nobody really talked about his ecstatic states or his, his idea that he was himself Dionysius or he himself was the Christ or he himself was the Buddha. I mean, he had all of these really extravagant, deified claims towards the end of his life. And those are always read in a kind of pathological way. And I became convinced reading Nietzsche that, that that was unfair and that he sounded a lot like the mystics I would was read. I had read as 
had read for decades, actually. And so he then becomes this sort of perfect exemplum of the superhumanities. He's he's the great humanist that apparently was taking everything down, but in fact, he was also building up. And and so that was, he be, he becomes kind of a core part of my argument in the book. Uh, that's why you, why you ran into him, Bob Lake. I mean, the here's the issue with Nietzsche. If you know, if you read Nietzsche, what he actually says is, "Look, you're not going to understand what I'm saying unless you've been in the same state." Uh, and by state, he means state of mind. He, he, you know, the the metaphor I use in the book, which comes from Nietzsche's notebooks, is that he's just living on another floor of the house, and we're down here on this lower room. And we hear him shuffling around upstairs, but we have no idea how to understand him or what to think of him because we we want to argue there's only one floor of the house. And Nietzsche's saying, no, there's actually a second floor of the house. And not only that, there's an open sky above it that has nothing to do with the house. And he says, you're never going to understand what I'm saying because you're 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 essentially you've locked yourself in this lower room. And so there's there's an argument here. There's a there's a philosophical argument about what truth is, what reality is, how we would come to know what's true, how we would come to know what's real, whether we can come to know that. You know, to go back to Karen's question again, um, you know, the people who are locked in the lower room of the house can't possibly know what's in the upper floors, and they certainly can't know what what the sky is. Um, so I th- I think that those are real, those are really powerful questions. Yeah, you you, you you've definitely you, knocked him up on my to read list. I mean, he was there anyway. Too. Yeah, but <laughs> oh yeah, well, you've got to read him. I mean, he's a wonderful writer. Um, he's very funny too, by the way. Well, you know, people say that about Ch- Charles Fort too, but I I, I don't. Oh, you know. <laughs> Fort's amazing, Blake. Um, I mean, Ford says some really stupid things, but he's he's hilarious. Um, so, yeah, we're kind of running short on time now. So I think we want to wrap up with a few final questions. But Jeff, I wanted to uh, say that you've talked a lot about how science can't really evaluate consciousness. But how do you define consciousness? Well, I don't. <laughs> That's the whole thing, Karen. You You can't actually define consciousness because... Consciousness is defining consciousness. It, it's it's a loop, or it's a, you know, it's it's the I trying to I itself, and it can't do that. Um, so subjectivity is subjectivity. Consciousness is consciousness. Awareness is awareness. It's not a thing out there that you can ever measure or replicate or reproduce. Um, it's it's you. It's it's the state you're in right now that that you probably can't. De- I certainly can't define it. Um, so I I take a very you know what we call in the humanities an apophatic position here. I I think we can say what consciousness is not, but we actually can't mm. say what it is. Um, because it's, I like that answer. A lot of people are yeah are very black and white about the question. So I very definite. Exactly. I, I in as an IT guy, uh, you know, that's in my day job. I, it's like I read a lot about information technology and artificial intelligence and this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, 
Yeah, but I don't. I'm a really hard skeptic of of computers achieving consciousness, largely yeah. because they can only model what you could define. Yeah. And if you can't define what consciousness is, how can you model it? You can't. I I'm a total skeptic. Like I don't think computers will ever be conscious. No, I, I don't either. I think that's ridiculous, and I think that's a function of materialism. Though, if you if you really believe that brains create mind, then you, then you can imagine a computer creating consciousness. But if if you think that that's reversed, it's the other way around that that mind creates brain, then 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 you'll never be an AI guy. I mean, that's just you've got to totally turn around. So so I think this bumps up nicely into I, probably what most I think a skeptical reader will have the hardest challenge when reading your work is you frequently say things like you uh, you believe joseph or cupertino really flew yeah like, like and i think for most skeptics they would just reject that right out i mean just like instantly be well people don't fly joseph cupertino cupertino was a person therefore he did not fly <laughs> so what do you mean when you say you really believe he flew do you literally believe he flew or do you believe that people oh. thought he flew or what what exactly is it you're saying there so i first of all i i don't think i ever say i believe he flew i actually don't like belief like i think belief is is the wrong way to go okay um, we may be on the same page again. What? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think Joseph of Cupertino flew, though. And the reason I think that is the historical evidence is so darn convincing. Hundreds and hundreds of people swore on the state of their souls and, and their lives that they saw him float or fly. And I don't think he was in control of this either. I think if you really look at the 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 documents the historical literature it's it's clear it's a very unconscious uncontrolled kind of floating or flying and i understand the skeptical response that human bodies don't fly float or fly <clears throat> but my reply is always well that's only impossible because of your assumptions about what is possible that's that that's not a description of what reality is obviously in this case, reality is not doing what you say it's doing. So whether something's impossible or not, I don't think it's a function of reality. I think it's a function of our frameworks. And, and I think these skeptical writers are just coming out of their own ideologies and their own convictions, which is, you know, they're free to do. But I don't have those ideological constraints or those convictions. I have the historical literature and evidence, and I don't see any reason to reject it. I, I, I see every reason to accept it. Um, but that doesn't mean I believe Joseph. I don't believe what Joseph believed. He had some beliefs that were pretty awful, in my opinion. Um, I think people experience astonishing things for all kinds of reasons. They believe all sorts of things. But that doesn't mean I believe the beliefs. It means I believe the phenomena in question. Or I think the phenomenon in question happened. So, but you think it really happened? Yeah. Not that people perceived that it happened. No, I think he really. I think it really happened. And that is fascinating to me. And and, and I think and I, I think that's going to be the hardest hurdle 
for skeptics to jump over, I think. But, but Blake, it's fine. It's okay if people disagree with that. I mean, oh, no, for sure. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to finish the book otherwise. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want people to be aware why they think that is not so. And I think I want them to understand that they think that is not so because of their philosophical commitments. It's not because of what history tells us. History is always offending and violating what we think is possible or impossible, and we select and choose what we want to fit our own philosophical assumptions. It's, it's, it's our theories that create the facts we claim are there. It's not, it's not reality. It's not the yeah. facts themselves, which are always violating what we think should happen. That's fact. When we planned this interview, I think <laughs> I was telling Karen, I said, what I probably really want is to go sit in a bar and talk to you for a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, we, me we, too. We, me can, we, we can't do yeah. that. <laughs> I hope we get to talk again in the future. <laughs> and I, hope, I hope neither of you think I have answers. I, I, I'm fascinated <laughs> by this material precisely because I don't understand it. If, if we understood this, I wouldn't be interested in it. Yeah. And, and and likewise, I mean, if we if we felt we had a complete understanding, we'd stop questioning. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think. And that's yeah. that's one of the dangers of uh, conclusions, isn't it? Um, yeah. But that being said, uh, I know a lot of my listeners are going to be losing their minds if I don't uh, like take you to task on that. But I'm not going to take you to task on it because <laughs> I, I already read the book. I, I knew that's where you were at, but I wanted you to explain it yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. So and, and I appreciate that. And I, I, I found it very interesting. And I thank you for talking to us today, but we have to bring this back to monsters because this show's called yeah. Monster yeah. Talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jeff, we've really enjoyed this discussion with you and you've certainly given us a lot to think about. But we've got one final question that we'd like to ask that we ask all of our guests, and that is what's your favorite monster? Yeah, I so I have monsters all over my study at home. I my Favorite monster is probably Mothman. Mm. And the reason I like Mothman. A popular one. Yeah. I, but I love the material because it's so, it's so offensive. It, it's so, <laughs> it so violates again what we think is possible. I mean, you're, you're talking about an eight foot Batman who lands on people's 57 Chevys, you know, while they're zooming down the highway. I, I think that's why I, I'm so attracted to monsters is because they they do things that are not supposed to happen. Well, it, 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 given your your uh, studies of Hindu culture, uh, you know, I think um, Keel starts out with talking about the Garuda. Yeah, and it's yeah. the year of the Garuda, and oh. I think a lot of people forget that Mothman before it became associated with you know moths. Um, which wouldn't have happened without Batman, which really ties into your whole, you know, super <laughs> humanity stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. If it weren't for that, uh, whoever that nameless journalist is who tied it to Batman 66, we, you know, he probably would be a Birdman uh, based on the original claims. So a fascinating yeah. choice. But yeah, Keel is uh, right there at the nexus of uh, trying to figure this stuff out, spends his entire life. Uh, looking into these questions and ultimately identifies himself as a demonologist, you know, yep. which is yep. a, a fascinating thing. Um, well, yep. here we are. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I, 
I, it's weird. I I don't think we're in agreement on our conclusions, but man, we love the same stuff. Uh, so yeah. I, <laughs> we have a lot in common. I mean, anytime I would love to come back if you have me again too. I I, I think it's great. I think it's great what you're sure. doing. Cool. And, and yeah, and uh, yeah, if you ever want to talk to skeptics who really try to give this stuff, I think as fair ground as we can. You know, I mean, we really. Yeah. We really like to assume that people are always sincere when they tell these stories. You know, the truth is, history is full of hoaxes and nonsense and all kinds of BS. But, you know, wouldn't the world be duller without it? I mean, I, I do I do value some of it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we can't stop loving it anyway, so. Man, maybe that's why I study religion. Yeah, maybe. And it's like, it's like I, I feel like, you know, it's like that uh, Brokeback Mountain. Why can't I quit you, Mothman? <laughs> <laughs> Th thank you so much for making time for us, Jeff. I really appreciate All right. it. All right, folks. Thanks, yeah, Thank Aaron. you, Jeff. We'll keep in touch. Yeah. Thanks, Blake. Have a back. great night. All right. Yeah, care. good night. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard part two of our two-part interview with Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, author of The Superhumanities. There's a link to this and other books by Jeff in the show notes. Karen and I still maintain our trust that skeptical inquiry and critical thinking are important ways to engage with stories that seem at first glance unbelievable. But we enjoyed talking with Jeff about the ideas in his book and hope that you found the conversation thought-provoking and entertaining. That's what we hope for from all of our episodes. We sincerely hope that you find our discussions the starting point for your own inquiries into these matters and not the end or terminus of your curiosity. I would hope Jeff would agree with that sentiment. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Food with Mark Bittman, Big Picture Science, and Fork in the Road. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys, and Karen and I thank you for making our humble show a part of your busy life.
This has been a Monster House presentation.